Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Spiritual Conversations with your host, Drake Miller. I am so thankful to be back this episode, another episode I'm really excited about today. Um, I'm really excited about the content. I'm really excited about the message. Um, We are going to continue our series on what makes a difference. What really makes the difference between this walk with Christ and anything else? Um, And I'm excited to delve more into that. And so before I get to the message and, and the conversation for today, I just want to say I hope you had a blessed weekend getting plenty of rest. I hope you've been able to enjoy time with friends and family, enjoy some time with those of this like precious faith, if you're able to do that in the presence of God in a house of worship somewhere. And if you aren't able to do that or you haven't considered that yet, I encourage you to get into the house of God. I know you will be blessed. I know you will find what you need there. So I encourage you. We have been having some amazing moves of God at Restoration Apostolic, which is where I I attend. And and I really hope wherever you're at, I hope you have had wonderful moves. And I also want to take a moment during this part of my episode and just say thank you. Um, We have been doing this for about 10 episodes now, and I am so thankful for those of you who have been listening. I'm so thankful for anyone who has tuned in. I have loved being able to connect with people, share the gospel of Jesus Christ, have some great conversation Um, try to teach us something along the way, give us something that will help us get through our week and maybe be able to share. I am just excited to see where all of this is going and, and none of it could be done without you all. So I, I really do love each and every one of you. I'm so thankful for all of you. And just remember, um, if you ever want to reach out to me, you can surely do so on Instagram, um, at spiritual conversations. Uh, my official profile is there. You can also go to drake.miller22. That's my personal page. Feel free to reach out to me there. Both pages are updated with content from the podcast. And you can also email me at spiritualconversations.drake at gmail.com. Um, and so all of, all of these ways are just ways for you to reach out to me and for us to communicate and keep this conversation going throughout the few weeks. And so I am just excited for for what God is doing. And, and I would be really humbled and honored to hear from some of you. So do that if you would like. And and I just, I, I end this with, with really saying thank you. Thank you very much. So with that, last week, we started a series, as I mentioned earlier, under the title, What Makes the Difference? And As we said last week, this is a question with many different avenues of answering. It's a question which provides a launching pad, we said, a wellspring of opportunity to veer into many different things. What makes the difference between this life with Christ and any other 
school of thought or any other religion or ideology. And there's so many things that make the difference. As I referenced last week, I was in an art class and the professor was teaching about ancient Rome. And she said, what made the difference between the early Christians and any other belief system was the Messiah. And that got me thinking and, and it delved into all the things that make the difference and love makes the difference and the Messiah who is Jesus Christ makes the difference and what he did on the cross makes the difference and salvation makes the difference. All of these things, but really all the answers to this question lead us to one message and that's the first thing I, I mentioned. It's the greatest love story ever told. It is the amazing message of Jesus Christ and his love. It's something that cannot be fathomed anywhere else. It is when you realize that the God of the universe, the one who created everything, the one who has ruled since eternity, embodied himself in flesh and came and died on a cross for each and every one of us. That's what makes the difference. And today I'm going to be sharing more about that as we journey through this series of what makes the difference. And our overarching scripture, and really the one that sums it all up, is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And friend, it doesn't get any better than that. Because when you look at it, for God so loved, and that's when I can tell you my God loves. He doesn't just command. He doesn't just force anyone to do anything. He loves us. And the love of God makes the difference between this and any other thing. And for God so loved the world. He doesn't just love, but he loves all. He loves the entire world. The Spirit of God is a love-all spirit. He loves everybody. There's this ideology going on that we have to love everyone. And my friend, Jesus Christ, who is God Almighty, loves every person. He loves you. And for God so loved the world that he gave. God so loved the world that he gave all. He held nothing back. He gave his only begotten son. He put everything in this plan of redemption for us. The Spirit of God is a give-all spirit. If you're first coming to Christ or wondering about this man I speak of, you will find throughout all these episodes and throughout the entire Word of God that Christ gave all. He laid down his life for us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And if you contend 
for this precious faith. If you've come to Christ, you've given your life to the Lord, then I say unto you, my friend, we must love as Jesus loved. We must look at every human being on this earth and realize that behind the flesh they wear is a soul, and there is not one soul that God doesn't love. We've got to love everybody. Love God and love people and give your life for the cause of Christ. Give everything. And today, I'm going to teach on the next part of that scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And I'm going to teach on who that begotten son was and is. The only begotten son that is referenced here is Jesus Christ. He's the Savior of the world. Now, take a step back with me, if you would. For us to really understand who Christ is, all the way back to the writings of Isaiah, when the Lord himself spoke through Isaiah and said, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they meaning Israel and soon the whole world, may know that from the rising of the sun and from the west, there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. So this scripture very profoundly determines that there is only one Lord. There is no other God except the Lord who is Jehovah. God makes it very clear in this scripture and it, and, and especially here in all of these passages in Isaiah, that there is no God beside him. And he made sure to inform his people Israel of this fact when he hearkened unto them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thine soul and with all thy spirit. And we must be very clear here that from the Old Testament to the New, from history until present, there is not a different God or a different person of God for the Jews and for the Gentiles or for the Old Testament and for the New. There is only one Lord. There's only one Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ. And this is primary. This is foundational. And bear with me for just a minute, but the word Lord is Jehovah. And it means the existing one. And it is the proper name for the one true God. And the word Lord means also simply the one who just is. And God Almighty himself said to Moses, I am that I am. And what he meant was, I was, I am, and I always will be. And it identified God as the absolute ruler of the universe. And I'm going to show you who this Lord is and what he is associated with throughout the Old Testament. The Lord is associated with God Almighty in many different ways, and we see him as Israel's Redeemer when he said, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from, from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgment. So he is associated first with being a redeemer. We see the Lord associated with, with true 
holiness when he told Israel, For I am the Lord your God, and ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves, and ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. And so we note that he is now a redeemer. He's associated with holiness. And and note that we receive the same commandment in the New Testament to be holy as he is holy. Now, we also see the Lord associated with God's hatred of sin when he saw that the wickedness of man was great in all the earth. Keep in mind, this was prior to the flood in Genesis. And he saw that every imagination of the of the man's heart was only evil continually and it repented the lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart and the lord said i will destroy man whom i have created from the face of the earth so he is associated as being a redeemer the lord is is associated with true holiness and he is associated with an hatred of sin and here's the good news The Lord is also associated with redemption. For when he was enlightening Isaiah of the suffering servant who would die for all sinners, it said, It pleased the Lord to bruise him, for he hath put him to grief. And when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he bare their iniquities. That was the Lord speaking, that he would send a servant that would bear the sins of many, that's us, and he would justify us through that death. So we've seen the Lord associated with being a redeemer, We've seen him associated with true holiness. We have seen him him associated with being a hater of sin. And we have seen him now involved not just as being a redeemer, but being involved in the active plan of redemption. And who was that suffering servant the Lord put to grief? It was his only begotten son, whose name is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the Lord of the Old Testament revealed to us that we might believe on him and be saved. It says of him that he is the expressed image of the invisible God. He is the icon or the visible display showing us to the way to God and to repentance. It says, for in Christ dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So you remember when I told you that the Lord told Moses, I am that I am? Well, Jesus said unto those around him before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus Christ identified himself with the eternal Lord. So Jesus is Lord. And Peter, who before had confessed had confessed Christ openly and saying to Jesus, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Later, he most plainly identified Christ as Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration. So, who is this Christ, this Messiah we speak of? Jesus Christ, who bears the name above all other names, the name of Jesus 
His name at first glance means God is salvation or Jehovah is Savior. And his name, including that word and name Jehovah, identifies himself with the Jehovah of the Old Testament. So he is once again God Almighty robed in flesh. And his name, more appropriately, translates to God rescues. And so these two names, Jehovah is Savior and then God rescues, this reveals Jesus Christ as the same God of the Old Testament, whose name was Jehovah, and tells us that Jehovah has come to save. And it literally reveals God is so actively loving and caring. He came to rescue lost souls from hell and from death and from the grave. So when the angel came to Joseph, who was Mary's husband and Jesus' earthly father, and said, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her, speaking of, of the Christ child, is of the Holy Ghost. And she, sa- and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. What that angel was saying was he was letting Joseph know that this child was the mighty God in Christ, and he was the Messiah or the one that was going to save, and he had come, in fact, to save the world. This confirmed Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of the prophecy, which said, A virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being translated is God with us. And this was a prophecy spoken by Isaiah and was well known among the Jews. And so this would have confirmed Jesus Christ once again as God with us, with one intention, and that was to seek and save that which is lost. So when this Christ child was born and now celebrated, we can say, for unto us a child is born and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. So Jesus Christ, who is Lord, is Wonderful Counselor, this term being indicative of a miracle and is used to describe a king. So Jesus Christ was and is and will always be a miraculous counselor and godlike king. He was also described as the mighty God, this term being the strongest of the terms in that scripture, and is one which describes him as indeed God himself. Jesus is the Lord of the Old Testament, and he has come because he loves us so much. He wants to bring salvation. And to clear up any confusion of him being called the Son of God, and to clear up any idea of delineating persons, he was described here as the everlasting Father, which literally means Father of Eternity, and denotes him as being the source of life here and all life in eternity. And Jesus confirmed this while he was on this earth when he said, I and my Father are one. So Jesus, once again, was the expressed image 
of the everlasting Father. Jesus is the everlasting Father. And his last title, the Prince of Peace, indicates that the mighty God and the everlasting Father would be a benevolent ruler bringing eternal peace on earth through the establishment of his kingdom. So, my friend, Jesus Christ is eternal. He is not just one with God, denoting some complex rulership, but he is God, being the expressed image of the Lord, and he loves you. Jesus Christ, the eternal God, loves you. But while I could go on showing you the unity of Jesus Christ with the Father and showing you He is one with the Spirit, and while I could continue on today showing you that there is only one God, my message alternatively is this. This one God, this Lord Jehovah, robed Himself in flesh and came to seek and to save that which was lost. And his name is Jesus Christ. He came to seek and save that which was lost. He came to seek us. He came to find us and to save us. That one God was manifest in the flesh in a man called Jesus, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Though he could have come being called Lord, or Jehovah, or the mighty God, he could have demanded to be recognized as the everlasting Father, or wonderful Counselor, and he could have come in all of his majesty. He didn't. One night, with the heavenly host appearing unto the shepherds, but his parents, having no place to lie down, a king was born, and his palace was a manger filled with hay. His royal robe was a swaddling cloth, and a halo was his crown. And all the world rejoiced, because a king was born. A savior, as we read earlier in Isaiah, had been promised, and now the Savior had come to pass. He didn't come as they thought. He wasn't robed in royal garb. But nevertheless, the news spread quickly that Jesus Christ had been born. Wise men came bearing gifts of frankincense, gold, and myrrh as offerings of praise, and shepherds left their flocks to see this Christ child who they recognized at once as the Messiah. He grew up living a humble life, working as a carpenter and teaching in the temple. But when he was recognized, it wasn't with some great title denoting his royalty. Instead, when John saw Jesus coming down the road one day, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. He was denoted by the one who came to bring salvation. This was how Jesus would be recognized. He was, in fact, the Lamb of God, which would take away the sins of the world. He is the Lamb for sinners slain, and he was slain before the foundations of the world for for you and me. He was the Lamb 
without blemish, and without spot, that he could offer himself as a sacrifice once for all people. And friend, he was the Lamb of God who came, not in splendor, but in meekness, to save each and every one of us from our sins, that we might believe on him and have eternal life. And this Lamb of God, this suffering servant, this Jesus, went unto a place called Gethsemane, and realizing the time had come, said unto his disciples, Sit ye here, while I go and pray yonder. And that place Gethsemane means an olive press, and it describes what our Lord endured for us. In order to fully understand the significance of this, you must understand how an ancient olive press actually works. When the olives are put into the press, they are put in the pressing station. Specifically, they are put in between a pressure screw and white Jerusalem limestone. And then following their position between that screw and that limestone, tremendous pressure is applied. And as this happens, something amazing takes place. The oil and the water of the olives are separated and the oil emerges blood red before turning the standard color of olive oil we know of today. And this exact symbolism, my friend, is seen in the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus was very specific in going to the Mount of Olives and to the Garden of Gethsemane, which means olive press or the Garden of the Olive Press, because that positioned him in between the pressure of the horror of his situation and the white limestone of the old city of Jerusalem where the crucifixion took place. And we can see this positioning and the turning of the screw during various times of the process. Christ was positioned in the olive press when he, looking down the cup of affliction, which was also the cup of redemption, he cried, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Jesus knew the cup of suffering which he was about to drink would be the precursor to his horrific torture and death. He understood the pressure he was about to endure for his blood to be separated from the water, just as is done to those olives. He knew what it was going to take, but he knew it had to be done so that his blood could pour out and be pure and available for atonement, and the water could pour out of him and be pure and available for washing or baptism. Now, the next notable moment is when Jesus Christ, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground. See, we often relate Jesus' bloodshed to just the event of the cross. But in fact, the Garden of Gethsemane was when Jesus was placed 
in the olive press and the pressure started to be applied. In the above scripture, he was positioned and the screw began to turn. His sweat, being as it were blood, was the first sign of the separation between water and blood. And it was the first sign of his blood pouring over the white limestone of Jerusalem and flowing to every nation. And as the events went on, we see after Jesus was sentenced to die and the pressure screw was tightened even more, more blood was shed. For this happened when Scripture says, Then released he Barabbas, talking about when Pontius Pilate released Barabbas unto them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he was delivered to be crucified. Jesus was flogged with a scourge. His body was ripped and marred, which caused more blood to flow. Just another turn of the screw. And after this, we see the screw was tightened even more, and more blood was shed, for he was given a crown of thorns on his head and a reed in his right hand. For when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they had put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail! King of the Jews. And though the reed was placed for mockery and not for bloodshed, the crown of thorns certainly would have shed blood and caused nerve racking pain to ripple down his whole body. And probably the most notable symbol of the pressure screw turning and blood being shed is the fact that Jesus had nails put through his hands and his feet. And though this event is not directly mentioned in the accounts of the crucifixion, we see evidence of this when it says, When the other disciples therefore said unto Thomas, being after the crucifixion, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said unto them, Except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of nails, and thrust my hand into his side, I will not believe. This scripture gives evidence of when his hands and presumably feet were nailed to the cross and more blood was then shed. The next and final moment was the most significant turn of the screw. When they pierced his side and water and blood both poured out. At this point, Jesus had experienced all the pressure required and his blood was then pouring over all the city of Jerusalem. At this point, it was finished. When his side was pierced and the blood and water were split, the greatest volume of blood ran down the cross and touched the ground below. Things unimaginable happened. But it all hinged on the pressure screw being tightened all the way down. And it was in this moment the world was covered with the blood of Jesus. Therefore, there and our atonement was made. It was in this moment the world was covered with the water of Jesus. Therefore, their sins could be washed away. And after this horrible death and this defining moment, the next thing we hear about the Lord after he was placed in a borrowed tomb, is he is not here, for he is risen. 
friend, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever should believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Our God is not dead. He is alive. He rose again, and he rose with all power in heaven and in earth. He has come to lead us to repentance, to give us life through his death, and to allow us to walk in newness of life through the same Holy Ghost that raised him from the dead. It's all here for you. All you have to do is partake in it. He testified of himself when he said, I am he that liveth and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. That means sin and death has no power anymore. So I say unto you today, come. This is the message of the Spirit and the Bride. Come. Is anyone thirsty? Come. All who will, come and drink. Drink freely of the water of life. Be covered in his blood. Be washed in the water. Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remissions of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And, friend, the honest truth is we don't have much time. Jesus is coming back. He said, Behold, I come quickly. So I just want to say one more time, Come. He did all this so that you could. Next week, we'll start to delve into what it means to believe on Him. What it means to be saved through the only name that can save, the name of Jesus. We will delve into the believeth in Him part of for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Friend, I hope you're blessed. I hope you have peace and joy. If you have a home church, I pray you and your church are blessed this week. And if you don't, and you're in the Athens, Georgia area, I would love for you to be my guest on Easter Sunday at Restoration Apostolic Church, 110 Moores Grove Road, Winterville, Georgia. I'll be saving you a seat, and I really hope to see you there. Come and give your life to Christ. You'll be so glad you did. And even if you don't have a home church and you don't live near Athens and you need help finding somewhere to go, please reach out to me. I gave plenty of avenues at the beginning of this episode. I will help you find a church. I will get you in touch with some people who can encourage you towards virtue and salvation. Because friend, that's why we're here. We're here to help you. I'm here to help you. I would be glad to help you find a church. 
and college friends out there, I'd be glad to help you find a college ministry on your campus. I'm sure there is one. So until next time, until next week, thank you and be blessed.